And we welcome you to the Thursday morning show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I'm very excited to be reconnecting with a Carthage faculty colleague, Dr. Thomas Carr, Associate Professor of Biology and Director of the Paleontology Program at Carthage. Right off the bat, we're going to be just talking about a little bit of, of, of what it's been like for him to carry on with his particular teaching duties during COVID-19, and then we will get to uh, a very exciting announcement, exciting news that Thomas Carr has been sitting on for a little while, and uh, a news story embargoed until actually today. And uh, today being uh, Thursday, we're actually, but at at any rate, it is uh, something that uh, is a, a, a lovely advancement in his distinguished career in the field of paleontology, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. But first, Dr. Thomas Carr, we uh, welcome you back to the morning show. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be back under these circumstances and troubled times. Absolutely. So uh, when I, I want to uh, first just talk a little bit about uh, your teaching life during COVID-19, and uh, I'm basically posing to you the same question that's been posed to a number of other teachers at various levels, uh, namely as it first became evident that COVID-19 was going to uh, impact uh, our own community and and the school where you and I teach, uh, what were some of the first thoughts that you had in terms of transferring what you normally do in a physical classroom and or lab uh, into the realm of the virtual uh, what kind of challenges did you immediately start thinking about? Well, I took a, a cue from some of the instruction that, in general, that we received, and that was basically to approach the rest of the semester as triage. And so that was my frame of mind going forward. Um, I realized that the situation has changed on a dime for the students, and who knows what situation they're in. And so my objective was to maintain a level of assessment that wasn't burdened, that was not burdensome. Hmm. And so I really trimmed down uh, what I did. But at the end of the day, the students were responsible for two fairly hefty assignments each week and uh, one due Friday, one due Monday. And that way I was able to uh, keep assessment moving ahead and refining the learning outcomes I had in mind. Uh, I, over and above the, the course, was for a biology course, over and above that, I was teaching an independent study uh, with one of my paleo track students. And we were able to fairly seamlessly shift over to, um, you know, Google Meets and Zoom. Uh, she had a major presentation and we intensively met. Um, in practice for her talk um, that was assessed major part of that course and most of her assignments were written above and beyond the you know the presentation and so that was a fairly straightforward way to maintain assessment i did have to drop a couple assignments um just it was just impractical to follow up on a couple things so just that was a rare a painless process, uh, one that I don't think either one of us was really happy to make, but just given the circumstances, you know, just, you know, the, just having to 
you know, live in different places and not meet face to face did make a substantial difference, not catastrophic. Um, but we did have to trim a couple assignments. And as for the course I previously described, a whole bunch of things were trimmed from that. Hmm. But at the end of the day, in my view, the main learning outcomes were achieved. Very good. So uh, we should get to the big news that uh, you've been sitting on for some time, namely uh, the publication of a really significant study on growth in T-Rex. And uh, you actually have not even, understandably so, been able to convey very much to me, even ahead of our conversation, about you know, kind of the nature of this. But one of the things you did say is that it's perhaps, at least in some respects, the largest such study of its kind. Well, uh, that's true. So let's talk, first of all, kind of the basics of, of what this was and also its dimensions. I mean, what makes this a, a really big study? And then uh, you can uh, give the big announcement. Okay, well, it's... Uh... A big study of growth in T-Rex, as you said, and it uses a particular method to recover growth. So um, it uses individual specimens like Sue from the Field, Mu Field Museum or Jane from the Burpee. They're actual data points in this growth series. And I basically view dinosaur skeletons as constellations. So the constellations of features. And so, for example, um, young animals like Jane, all their features are by and large young features and all the features of Sue, in contrast, are adult features. And in between, we might have animals that are intermediate in age. And so their constellation will be half young features and half adult features. Hmm. So that's the basic setup. The basic approach is looking at features and that could be size. It could be growth rings and bones. It could be the shape or presence of a horn. It could be an open or closed suture. So anything you think of as changing in a skeleton in people, by and large dinosaurs went through that as well. So bones change shape and dimension and, and all the rest of that. Um, back in 2004, a colleague of mine uh, and I published a growth series using this method. It's called, called cladistic analysis. Use this method to recover the growth series of T-Rex. That was only based on five specimens. Mm. One juvenile, one subadult, a baby, and a couple old ones. And we were able to recover a growth series for those five specimens. And we used less than 100 features from the skull and teeth. So it's a small data set, just a handful of specimens, and just a small sample of features that didn't cover the entire skeleton. And can I just ask, what, what was the nature of those 100? I mean, did you choose them or start there because they were especially significant? Or did you choose those 100 features because all of the specimens shared those versus maybe other features that might have been missing from a given specimen? Yeah, that's a great question. So that's one of the major choke points on any study like this is the completeness of specimens. So obviously we're limited 
by and large to the least complete specimen mm. in, in the data set. Uh, in some ways, that's not entirely true, but it is a limitation. Uh, so there are a bunch of characters that, this is a technical term for features as characters. Um, there were 84 characters that had caught my eye as being different between juveniles and adults. Much of those features were drawn from an earlier work that I published in 1999 about the growth of the skull in Tyrannosaurus. So we drew heavily from that and added in a few new features. And so that set the, the start of what would ultimately culminate in what, in what has been published this morning. And so what's been published today is a long overdue update of that original data set. So instead of five specimens, in my analysis, there's now 31. So we've increased the sample size significantly. And in terms of the features, um, I've been able to add more, char more characters from the skull and jaws and teeth, also from the rest of the skeleton. So I have many features uh, from the vertebrae, features from the shoulder, from the arm, from the hips and the leg and foot. And so the data set is now 1,850 features. Wow. So what we have is a very high resolution snapshot of growth in T-Rex hmm. based on those constellations of features that we see in each specimen. And so what, what I've recovered is a growth series for T-Rex. It has 21 growth stages. And so interestingly, uh, Sue at the Field Museum turns out to be the most mature T-Rex. Wow. Also the oldest in terms of growth rings. So other studies have counted growth rings in Tyrannosaurus. And the youngest T-Rex in the sample is a baby that's in Los Angeles at the Natural History Museum there. So in that way, this result is consistent with our 2004 study. Hmm. So the maturity of the original four specimens has been retained. And basically the, the continuum of growth has just been filled in between all those specimens. So when you say that you have lined out then 21 growth stages, is is that sort of like saying, um, you know, they look like this when they're born, they look like this when they're roughly two years old, they look like this when they're roughly five years old? And I mean, are, are, are we talking about kind of a chronological linear succession of growth stages that would be very consistent from T-Rex to T-Rex? Yes, so that's one of the beauties of the method of cladistic analysis is the growth series looks like a tree. And so toward the bottom of the tree at the root is positioned the least mature specimen. And the most mature specimen is positioned farthest from the root. So Sue is sort of at the end of the tree. And in between all these specimens of intermediate and increasing maturity, are placed. And so I'm able to identify the algorithm recovers the features that support each growth stage. And so that's actually a big part of the, of the article is listing off 
reams and reams of features that support the juvenile growth stage, the subadult growth stage, the young adult growth stage, the adult growth stage, and so on. Hmm. So it, it tells us if you look at this feature, it suggests this growth stage. Exactly. If we look at a particular feature and, and exactly the details about it. Yes. Cool. So those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Thomas Carr, who is director of the paleontology program at Carthage, associate professor of biology, and uh, a major study on the growth of T-Rexes is just published today as you are hearing this uh, announcement. And the, the news of it is just being uh, announced today for the very, very uh, first time. So, uh, Dr. Carr, maybe you could explain the means by which, means and or method by which you have examined these, I think you said 31 different specimens of, of T-Rex. And um, if some of that examination was actually in a sense in person, I mean, with your own eyes, looking at it right in front of you versus more in sort of virtual methods of, of, uh, of examining those specimens. How, how did that actual examination process uh, happen? And I think beyond kind of the visual uh, aspect in the moment, it would also be interesting to know a little bit about how, you're, how you gained access, whatever the nature of that access was, to all of these different specimens. Well, since I have a, uh, an advanced degree and a track record of publication behind me, uh, the door is generally open uh, quite easily to museum collections. I mean, that's what they're there for. They're, they're there for scientific study, and that's my intent when I knock on the door or email a collections manager requesting to see specimen. So ideally, I see everything firsthand, and... That may involve multiple trips to various museums. Um, I visited the Los Angeles Natural History Museum a couple times in the past two years uh, to look at the specimens they have. Because sometimes I run out of time and need to go back. I've been spent multiple trips and multiple weeks at the Museum of the Rockies, which is something that you and your listeners know. I'm, hmm. It's virtually my home away from home. And so I've been there recently as part of this project and in the next iteration of it. So ideally, I want to see everything in person firsthand. Uh, there are circumstances where I will discover new features when I'm looking at, say, a new specimen. And I'll have to rely on photographs, say, to score in or code in the other specimens. And... Uh, that's unavoidable. And I made a special effort for this study to make sure that I saw everything firsthand as much as I could and not rely so much on photographs. So I'll give you an example of why that is. Um, I have a good friend named Michael Holland. Uh, he did some work at the uh, Burke Museum in Seattle. Uh, he prepared their famous Tufts Love T-Rex, which is an absolutely gorgeous skull and part of an arm and a few other bits. And um, as the preparation of that skull was proceeding, um, Michael would send me some photographs of the specimen and I would code those in. Um, and 
So I had a set of data based on photographs. And then I actually went to the Burke Museum. This was last spring and uh, got to see the specimen firsthand. And it turned out that at least a third of my codes for that skull were completely incorrect. Wow. And so, and, and I did expect a certain amount of error. I, I guess I sort of expected it to be that high. And so that's one thing I stress to my students is it's really important to see the real thing. And uh, because, you know, photographs are unreliable sources of information. Yeah. You think you know what you're seeing, but maybe at least 33% of the time you don't. Hmm. So I make special effort to see everything uh, that I can. Um, every specimen that I've included in the study, I have seen and have data on them from years ago when I visited them. Hmm. I'm curious about um, the, the way these various specimens are housed. Uh, I mean, I think most of us, I'm assuming, most of us, I think, would assume that when you're visiting to, to examine a, a T-Rex, uh, that you're seeing it sort of as the public would see it. I mean, where it's mounted and it looks like a T-Rex. I mean, like the famous Sioux down in Chicago. Uh, is that, generally speaking, the way these specimens are kept, I mean, mounted as though to recreate the general appearance of a T-Rex versus individual uh, bones that are in in drawers that you open up and examine sort of one by one. Um, which, which is the more common way for you to be seeing a specimen? It's a real mix. Um, it's, it's basically a bit of both. And it can be a real problem for science. Uh, there are some institutions where specimens such as you know complete skulls and such are permanently behind glass hmm. and that in one stroke wipes out probably half of what i can of the data that i can obtain wow and so it's really um something that i hope that changes in the future that uh, specimens that are currently locked behind glass uh, will have maybe have one side replaced with a door on a hinge i mean it really hurts science when specimens are inaccessible. Um, on the other hand, uh, there are museums like the Museum of the Rockies that have everything accessible. So they have a number of T-Rex skulls and a skeleton on display. And the display is built in such a fashion that I can actually get in among the bones, take measurements, photograph, sit on a stool and code things. And for the mounted skeleton, uh, the museum's very cooperative. You know, I'm able to hop on a ladder uh, with someone stabilizing it, and I'm able to get data that way. So it's a range. Uh, the Museum of the Rockies is a very happy exception to the general pattern of, uh, you know, specimens being inaccessible and only, you know, viewable through glass. So I really hope that going forward that museum designers, exhibit designers, really think of science first hmm. because you know as i said uh, there are some important specimens for which i have an incomplete data set purely by dint of a case that can't open hmm. so for instance the, the the most famous t-rex as far as our listeners are concerned 
namely Sue, down in Chicago. And remind me, is that at the Field Museum? Yes. Yeah. So what is the accessibility to Sue, for instance? Accessibility is fantastic. So um, the skull is in a bulletproof case (laughs) that can be opened. During my PhD days, uh, they did open the case for me and rolled it out on a trolley. It's the most amazing thing. Wow. Um, Given how delicate the skull is, I've only asked for that once. Um, Back in collections, there's a very high resolution research cast of Sioux, which is, you know, one-to-one fidelity to the specimen. And so I work, so most of my data is from that research cast. Hmm. And the detail is high enough that, you know, I can pull a lot of data out of, out of that. So Um, for all, so for all intents and purposes, you're looking at the original Sue, even though what in fact you're looking at is a perfect replica. Yes. And the, the only, um, the only difference between that cast and the original would be, you know, some small difference in linear measurements, but that's not what I look at a cast for. I don't measure casts. You know, you have to measure the real thing and enough of Sue's bones, you know, there's enough measurements published out there that I can draw on from the literature. Hmm. So the research cast of Sue is, is really great because, you know, I can pick up with two hands, you know, a five foot long ilium and, you know, has a hip bone and just maneuver it on the table. You know, you just can't do that with a real fossil. So when I go to places like, again, the MLR Museum of the Rockies, uh, there's quite a few specimens in collections and many of the bones are really big and heavy. And some I just simply cannot lift. (laughs) Either that I don't have the strength or moving them would endanger the fossil. And I don't want to do that. Um, So there is a trade-off. And so Sue's been a wonderful experience. I've gone to uh, the Field Museum on multiple visits for this particular project to build up the adult end of the data set based on that research cast. And it's just been a wonderful experience uh, building up those data. Now, not that it would mean anything to any of us uh, amateurs, but if we looked over your shoulder Mm -hmm. as you are examining a, a given specimen, um, then what, w- what would we typically see you writing down? I mean, what is it that you are transcribing specimen by specimen? Oh, it's so boring. <laughs> <laughs> I recommend watching paint dry. It's really much more interesting. I've actually done that. I've watched, I've watched paint dry and it has a certain, a certain appeal. Um, <laughs> your next study. Okay. Yeah, that, that's for yeah, a story for another day. Um, what I have is a list of a master list of features that I look at. So I'll have, excuse me, on the table, I'll have a cast bone of Sue and I'll have my master list for that bone. And I write down the feature that Sue has, the version of that feature. So for example, let's think about the ilium again, the, the hip bone. And there's a certain ridge on the side of that hip bone. And in young animals, that, that ridge is really distinct. In adults, that ridge is faint. 
So it's very low. And so I will look at Sue, at Sue's ilium, left and right side, and write down whether or not that ridge is distinct or indistinct. Then I move on to the next feature. Because remember, I'm after this constellation of features. You know, what proportion of adult features does Sue have? Is it 100%? Naturally, isn't 100%. There's a few features that are relatively young, even though it's an old animal. So I'm after that constellation. So that's what you'd see me doing, is putting down the flavor. There's usually only two flavors of each feature. And is that, uh, uh, is that a technical term, by the way, that you're using? Not at all. <laughs> okay, all right. <laughs> Not at all, but... Who doesn't like ice cream? Right, right. So there, so that that's so. In other words, it's most of the time it's not an array of ten choices or even eight. It, it's generally speaking, will be a couple of choices in terms of, for instance, yeah. is this feature really distinct or less distinct? For instance, yeah, and uh, you know, it might be <clears throat> two to four features. I think that's toward the upper end. Is four versions of the same thing. But by and large, it's two. So for example, of that data set of 1,850 characters, less than 220 are what's called multi-state. Hmm. So when you have more than two flavors, binary, they're called multi-state. Right. So there's just around 200 of those. Now, is this the kind of study where uh, it adds up to sort of a focused conclusion of sorts or is this more just a exhaustive <laughs> exhausting list of how all of these different elements in a t-rex skeleton change over the course of the t-rex's life is it more the former or the latter well what it is it at least what i hope it will become or i hope that i succeed in establishing this growth series as the point of reference for understanding biology of T-Rex. So what we have is a, is a growth series from the youngest to the oldest, and I've documented all the changes along the way. And so what that does is it provides a context for understanding all the other sorts of work that's been done on T-Rex, and I provide multiple examples of this in the paper. So for example, um, we have data on uh, the number of growth rings in T-Rex. And now that we have the growth series, we can actually compare whether or not those chronological age estimates actually bear out. Hmm. And they do. We can also ask whether or not you can estimate a T-Rex's size, or sorry, a T-Rex's age from size or mass. And it turns out for adults, you can't. Oh. And you'd never know uh, without having the growth series first. Also, there's been studies done on brain size in T-Rex. It turns out that it starts out pretty big. It decreases relatively in adulthood. And then the brain starts to enlarge again. Hmm. Um, another surprising result, one surprising result was bite force. So you can measure how, or you can infer how hard a T-Rex could bite. And those estimates have been published for uh, juvenile and some adults. And it turns out that bite force increases with maturity, mm. just like in crocodiles. And I didn't expect that at all. And so when you compare one thing to a point of reference, 
and you want to know if they change together. That's called a correlation. So you can statistically test that. And so I've run correlations of many aspects of T-Rex biology against the growth series to see if these features actually do change with growth. And some things do and some things don't. Hmm. So it's a very useful tool that helps to make previous work make sense hmm. and it, in the context and it, of growth. Right. And it, it probably is a tool for answering all kinds of different questions that yes. at a glance at least have nothing directly to do with the growth of a T-Rex, but, but because that's so fundamental to uh, what T-Rex was and how it functioned through various stages in its life, this, this ends up answering all kinds of other questions or can be part of the answer to many questions. Yeah, it, it can lead to that. So there's been a lot of really great work done recently on functional biology. So quantifying, you know, how fast a T-Rex could turn, um, the skull strength, this sort of thing. And we're very biologically minded uh, across paleontology. And so there's these really heavy duty quantitative studies of basically physics of T-Rex. And studies are done on a representative young animal, and usually one or two representative adults. So not only with the growth series can we actually identify what the major trends are into adulthood, but we can also see where the gaps are in our information. Hmm. And that's just as helpful, is knowing really how little we know about T-Rex and how much work we have ahead of us to, to fill in those gaps. And right now, it's a very incomplete picture. It's a very interesting uh, picture of, you know, the biology of T-Rex, but we've got a long way to go. Mm-hmm. But a lot of very important foundational work has been done across the field. Is, has this kind of study and to this extent on this scale been done with other dinosaurs? Uh, or is there, this quite uncommon in the field? Yeah, so as far as I know, this is the most comprehensive study of its kind. There are many others. Um, uh, there's... For, there's <coughs> I've done three others for Tyrannosaurus, uh, including T-Rex, and I'm in the process of updating those for a great big synthesis of all Tyrannosaur growth series. But so there's three that I've done. There's been some interesting work done on uh, Canada geese in terms of bone texture change. Um, there's been this sort of work done for a fairly primitive birdline reptile called Proterosuchus. It mostly focuses on the skull, I think exclusively the skull, if I recall correctly. And also there's been a study published by one of my former students, Joseph Fredrickson, on the horned dinosaur, Centrosaurus. And at the time, Joseph's work was the arguably the most exhaustive that had been done using this approach. And um, the current study, you know, builds on that approach in terms of having a very um, large data set and, and basically doing what I call walking the dog. So in many ways, this the article that I've published is trying to demonstrate how useful it is to have a growth series in hand. Mm. Because you cannot make the claim that just because a T-Rex is big, that it's old, and then make some a whole bunch of inferences about 
it being a typical adult, we have to be, you know, we have to have some precision in order to really understand the biology of this animal in any detail. And so if I succeed in anything, it's providing a tool that people can use and not make false positive mistakes. So for example, uh, I think last year there was a study published on mass estimates in T-Rex, and there was a T-Rex identified as the most mature T-Rex simply because it was big and the heaviest. Mm. And it turns out that that specimen is the youngest adult wow. in the data set. Huh. And, and really the oldest T-Rex is a, is a leaner animal, which is Sue. Hmm. Fascinating. I mean, that, that just underscores the fact that although we often tend to think simplistically about, well, animals in general and dinosaurs as well, that we tend to think that every brontosaurus looks like every other brontosaurus uh, and, and there are certain variations that uh, mean that we shouldn't be careless about the assumptions we make. Yeah, I can see how this study would be very, very helpful in, in, in uh, allowing scientists studying T-Rex to be much more precise. So explain to our listeners the means by which this massive study is uh, being shared with the world as of today. Yes, it's uh, been published in the Open Access Journal, the PureJ, so everyone on the planet uh, with an internet connection can download and read the paper for themselves. Uh, it's, uh, I guess I should uh, issue a warning. It's not a short article. <laughs> it's, <laughs> the article itself is, I think, hits 100 pages. I cover a lot of ground. It's, it's an unusually long article. And it had to be. And when I initially uh, submitted it, when it was just a, a tiny 70 plus pages, um, I had no idea what the reaction would be to it. You know, I, I wondered if, if the editor would just send it back and say, no, this is excessive. Or if it went out for review, I imagine maybe all the reviewers would say, this is just crazy there's no way we're reading this and send it back. Fortunately, the opposite happened. Um, the reaction to it was quite enthusiastic. And um, I think the reviewers understood what the main effort was. And th that being is to show the value of this approach um, of cladistic analysis for recovering growth series. Over the past several years, there's been a whole state of so-called studies of growth in various dinosaurs uh, where these growth series are either size-based. And we know that's problematic because, you know, we can just walk into a room of people and see that adults of all, you know, fully grown adults will be a whole range of sizes and heights. And that's a general rule for vertebrates is, you know, adults <laughs> tend to be different sizes. You know, and so we can't, there's no excuse to rely on size as a proxy for maturity anymore since we have this algorithmic tool to use to recover growth and also there's been some studies published recently that do make use of features but they just assume that the features are evidence of relative maturity they don't actually test those assumptions by doing an actual analysis so my data set of 31 skeletons and 1,850 features are in a great big spreadsheet. 
that gets analyzed by a specialized software program that recovers the growth structure in those data. And I can tell you from personal experience that as that you cannot reliably estimate the maturity of an animal, no matter how many you've seen. So for example, when I was in, uh, in Seattle looking at the Tufts love racks, it's a relatively young animal. And I was taking notice of its young features as I went along this very intense week. Hmm. And when I left Seattle, I thought, well, it's going to wind up as a fairly young, young adult. And it turned out to be the oldest young adult. Whoa. So e even though I've seen umpteen Rexes, I think I know Rex fairly well. When a data set is that extensive, just you cannot rely on your own judgment like beyond a certain point. It's just impossible for the human mind to, you know, collate and synthesize. It just can't be done. You know, I was right. You know, it was a, a relatively young animal, but any precision beyond that is just can't be done. You really have to do the analysis. You have to test your assumptions independently. And in a way, my article is a call to action that enough is enough. We can no longer honestly rely on size to make a claim that an animal is the oldest. And we have to analyze our features if we're gonna be honest about their transformation during growth and the relative maturity of individual specimens that might be you know, on display in a museum somewhere. In other words, there's no shortcuts in terms exactly. of, of, of determining some of these really fundamental aspects of a given specimen of, of, of T-Rex and yeah. only your exhaustive work and the work of others who might follow in your, in your footsteps allow us to know some of these really basic questions like how old was this T-Rex when it died? Uh, yeah, that's a very elegant way of putting it that there are no shortcuts. And I completely agree. There's no excuse for shortcuts anymore and I just wanted to show people, like colleagues, just the power and usefulness of this approach. Is that when you have an objectively recovered growth series, you can really get a lot of mileage out of it. Scientifically, that is. Well, we commend you on uh, all of this work that uh, has uh, that you have done over the course of years, of course, building upon some of your earlier studies and culminating in something so extensive and so uh, exciting. Do you foresee yourself continuing very specifically in this same kind of work from here? Yes, and so what I'm working on right now, um, among all the other things I'm juggling, is I'm working on the growth series of all other Tyrannosaurs. And so the end game of this, is, this work doesn't end with T-Rex. What, what I really want to understand is how Tyrannosaurus evolved. And in some ways, growth is like a movie of evolutionary change. And so uh, features that are unique, uh, that arise as, as unique features in transfer evolution, can actually be seen to grow in during growth. Hmm. And so what we have is growth acting as a movie of deep evolutionary change. Hmm. And so if I want to understand how T-Rex came to be, 
I need the growth series of all other Tyrannosaurus to understand how that process actually happened. And just to clarify, so in other words, Tyrannosaurus rex is one kind of Tyrannosaur. And there are others that we, of course, don't hear as much about and people don't make movies about them and so on. But they are part of this same... uh, And what are we talking about with Tyrannosaurus? Is that a species? It's a a lineage. I think that's the best way to put it. So it's a lineage of... uh, I guess there's around a dozen species now. Hmm. And uh, some are more closely related to others. And the bottom line is, is growth is the key to understanding how ancestral features changed into unique features that we see in the skeletons of the species we collect. Hmm. And so that, that process I've, I've undertaken and hopefully we'll be chatting about that in a year or two. Right. When it's published. It's a long way to go, though. It's so much work. Yeah. Can I assume that COVID-19 is serving as an interruption of at least some of this work? I mean, I guess it depends. There's some work where you've gathered data and it's just a matter of, in a sense, collating it and organizing it that you certainly can do in the safety of your own home. But some of the other aspects of this kind of work, I would assume... Uh, would be very difficult, if not utterly impossible, to do right now uh, within these current restrictions. Yeah, yeah that, that's that's true. I'd actually uh, been organizing a month-long visit to Mongolia to look at Tyrannosaurus in museum collections there, and COVID just instantaneously shut that down. And that that was my own call. My my co-author, my my collaborator on that. Um, decide against, you know, travel. And, and so that's been postponed. I also wanted to visit various uh, museums around the, in the American West and Southwest, and all those institutions are closed hmm. now and for the foreseeable future. So right now, uh, it's just an, a good opportunity to really do a deep dive into the data that I do have, uh, that I've collected over, you know, the past dozen years or so and really get that into shape. So, you know, it's, uh, I take the good from the bad. (laughs) And so, and that process is, is moving along a pace and, you know, I'll be better positioned to visit those museums once these lockdowns are over. Very good. Well, in the meantime, we want to congratulate you on uh, all that you have accomplished uh, thus far and the publication of this major study. And uh, um, we're glad that uh, you were able to uh, tell the story about it uh, on the morning show today. It's always a pleasure to uh, talk with you. And uh, I look forward to our, our future conversations. And thanks again for being part of the morning show. And once again, congratulations to you. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me back. I appreciate it. Dr. Thomas Carr, Associate Professor.